Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In 2015, all 193 countries of the United Nations agreed to a set of 17 global goals for sustainable development, with 169 targets to be achieved by the year 2030. The goals include no poverty, zero hunger, clean water, climate action, ocean conservation, and sustainable cities. In a new collection of essays published by the Brookings Institution Press, expert authors consider innovative approaches to achieving these goals. On today's show, my colleague Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Press, speaks with one of the volume's editors and one of its authors. Homi Karas is interim vice president and director of the Global Economy and Development Program at Brookings and is co-editor of From Summits to Solutions, Innovations in Implementing the Sustainable Development Goals. With him in the studio is Enric Sala, a contributor to the volume and a National Geographic Explorer-in-Residence, who is a leader in exploration and research conservation to protect the world's oceans. Also on today's show, Molly Reynolds reports on what's happening in Congress, focusing on the options Congress has to back up their criticisms of President Trump's statements at the Helsinki meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Over to you, Bill. Thank you, Fred, and welcome, Homie and Enric. From Summits to Solutions is the name of the new book. It's an informed take on the sustainable development goals, which were adopted by 193 countries in 2015. Before we talk about the goals, though, can you define what you mean by sustainable development, Homie? So I think that up until now, development has often been uh, equated uh, very narrowly with GDP growth and Mm -hmm. essentially with growth in uh, material progress. And what we've really come to understand is that that's a uh, very narrow uh, concept. And so today you have a great deal of discussion of uh, what can be called the idea of recoupling that GDP growth has to translate into improving the material conditions of people in the economy. And increasingly what we've seen is that uh, quite a lot of growth does not actually uh, result in increases in, uh, say, median wages or in uh, the uh, average conditions for uh, families. Mm. So we have to figure out a way of uh, recoupling development with improvements in people's lives. And then second... We've also built development on really a process that doesn't look after the planet. And we are rapidly encountering limits to the extent that we can just exploit the planet without bearing some consequences. So sustainable development is also about decoupling economic growth from planetary degradation. And that's also something of uh, great concern in a uh, lot of different areas. Mm. Broadly, what are the sustainable development goals that were adopted in 2015? There are a large number of them, but... There are 17 goals, and these goals cover the issues that were on the minds of uh, leaders all across the world. So very roughly, you can categorize the goals as being goals that are uh, about the improvement of uh, people's conditions, so their goals on uh, moving people out of poverty, improving their education, improving their health, mm-hmm. gender equality. There are also goals, though, on innovation and on infrastructure and on equity in societies. There are goals for the planet on uh, oceans, on um, life on land, 
on environmental emissions. And there are goals about institutions, about peace and governance and partnerships. That's what I thought was one of the virtues of the book, how broad-ranging the understanding of what sustainable development goals could be, not just a more narrow conception that I had earlier on. The book is devoted to the issue of implementing the goals, but it isn't focused on each and every goal. Uh, instead, you write, the contributors look at where breakthroughs are needed, and you structure those breakthroughs into three areas, capturing value, targeting places, and updating governance. And I wanted to ask if you could take us through each of these for a broad sense of what these goals are that need to be implemented. Value investing is the first. So let's just talk about capturing value. And uh, I'll give you two examples that come out of uh, chapters in the uh, book. One is the example of uh, gender equality. We talk about improving uh, GDP growth, but we never really seriously talk about the contributions that women make to our uh, lifestyles and our, uh, our happiness. And so whether it's about equal pay for equal work, whether it's about uh, recognizing the unpaid uh, work, particularly for uh, care, care for children, care for the uh, elderly, there are a number of contributions that women make that are just not captured in GDP. And so when we talk about capturing uh, the uh, value, what we want to do is change the system so that there are incentives for all of these kinds of efforts to be appropriately uh, recognized. Another example is the example of uh, climate emissions. And if you uh, think about the way in which the financial sector is uh, organized in particular, we have a financial sector which is very narrowly focused on trying to maximize short-term profit. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that it does exactly what it says. It ends up maximizing short-term profit, but it does not then consider all of the things that get neglected by short-term profit, including things like carbon emissions. And so we have chapters in the book about uh, why it is that new financial innovations like green bonds potentially are uh, so important. The second area is place-based targeting. I'll ask you, homie, first to describe what that is, and then I'd like to bring Enric in because his chapter deals specifically with this issue. Well, as soon as you talk about implementation of uh, goals, you actually have to talk about exactly where are we implementing mm -hmm. them. It doesn't happen in the uh, abstract. And so uh, you can think about them being implemented in urban areas and in rural areas. But one of the places that we have really not given much thought to at all in the uh, world up to uh, now is to talk about uh, implementing these goals in the oceans, mm -hmm. which is the vast bulk of our uh, planet. And uh, that was a uh, really interesting and important contribution from Enric. Right. Enric, in your chapter, you point out one of the sustainable development goals is to conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. Yet, as you note, there is no plan to achieve this goal. Why such short-sightedness? Well, as Homi said, the ocean covers 70% of the planet, yet it is far away from most people. It's out of sight, out of mind. People believe that the ocean is something that doesn't touch their daily lives. They don't know that the ocean gives them every other breath. You know, more than half of the oxygen we breathe actually is produced by bacteria and mm -hmm. microscopic plants in the ocean. Yet, last week, a survey of world leaders revealed that the ocean SDG 14 was the last in their list of priorities. It's a big problem of ignorance, not knowing what the ocean does for us. Also, 
it's a problem of old economic thinking, mm-hmm. thinking of you know everything that happens in the ocean is an externality. But as Comi said before, we have reached the limits and we are already seeing some of the consequences back to us. Could I ask you to explain what you mean by the term externality? So uh, many people were taught in classic economic theory where the cost of your actions, the cost of doing business, you know, are not always accounted for by the people doing the business, but by somebody else. So we emit carbon, we throw all this carbon pollution into the atmosphere, and the industry that throws the carbon into the atmosphere doesn't pay for the costs of health, you know, people getting asthma or lung cancer, or the acidification of the ocean, killing coral reefs because of the too much CO2 in the atmosphere that then is absorbed by the ocean and then kills coral reefs and fishes people in developing countries depend on. These are just examples of externalities. People externalize the cost of their activities. I have always thought that's one of the most important contributions that the discussion of sustainable development has given us, the, the idea of externality and what the real cost of it is rather than no cost at all, as it is in basic economics. Coming back to the oceans, it's been seen as an externality you mentioned for most of history, but that's a real error. That's a real error, and the ocean regulates the climate, right? You can ask people in New York what happened after Katrina. You know, that was the fury of the ocean fueled by too much warmth and humidity in the air because of our carbon emissions. It's all linked. It's all globalized. There is nothing external. We cannot get rid of anything. We are not throwing plastic away. It doesn't go away. It remains here on our planet. Mm -hmm. There's only one. And we have this one ocean that connects everything. And the issue of the plastic is one that is now coming to the attention of everybody. Countries are starting to commit to ban the use of single-use plastics. I have been to the most remote places in the ocean on our National Geographic expeditions, from the Russian Arctic to Cape Horn in the southern point of Chile to islands in the middle of the Pacific. And we have collected water samples. And in every place we have been, 80% of the water samples contained microplastics, which are microscopic particles of plastic that are found now everywhere. They are eaten by the fish with the toxins that these uh, particles carry. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The average seafood eater eats up to 11,000 microplastics every year. That's an amazing number. There are no externalities. It's all self-contained on this planet. And as Comi said before, we are reaching the limits. The time for action was yesterday. The solution you propose is to protect half the ocean and manage our activities in the other half smartly. Can you outline how you see this working? Right now, only 2% of the ocean is fully protected from fishing. We are taking fish out of the ocean faster than they can reproduce. Uh, More than a third of the fisheries of the world have already collapsed. And if we continue the way we're going, most of the fisheries will collapse by 2050. We are subsidizing the fishing industry with over $35 billion globally, which creates this huge overcapacity. There are too many boats chasing too few fish. On top of that, we are polluting the ocean now with plastic increasingly, and global warming is making the ocean warmer and more acidic, which is killing marine life all over the planet. We need to give nature more space. We need to give the ocean more space so it can continue providing for us. Scientific studies suggest that 
at least 30% and up to 50% of the ocean should be protected so that the ocean can continue to give us oxygen, regulate the climate, give us food, protect the coral reefs and other marine living habitats protecting the coast from erosion. But the other half that would be unprotected, you know, we cannot just dump everything that happened in 100% of the ocean into half of it. That would be a disaster. So we need to massively reduce the fishing effort around the world. If we cut the fishing fleets in half, mm -hmm. we would be catching the same amount of fish. Fishing today is not efficient and it's too destructive. Right now we have enough food in the world to feed 9 billion people, but we are throwing away a third of it. And the ocean could produce much more if instead of going after the last wild fish, we developed sustainable aquaculture, fish farming and seaweed farming that does not further degrade the marine resources. That brings us to the third area of a discussion in the book, which is governance. How do we make this happen? What are the innovations that are needed in this area? I'll look at the oceans uh, first, since you were just here. What kind of innovations, what kind of governance structures need to be in place? Right now, we have two oceans. We have the country's 200-mile zones, the exclusive economic zones, and the rest of the ocean, the international waters, also called the high seas. The exclusive economic zones account for 40% of the ocean, and the high seas account for 60% of the ocean. Every country has authority over the resources within the, those 200 miles. Everything beyond those areas is the Wild West. There are a few international commissions that regulate the fishing of tuna, but 13 out of 23 tuna stocks are overexploited because the decisions are made on short-term economic gain and political considerations, not on, on the scientific basis, on the sustainability of these of this species. So we need to create a global fisheries agency that is independent, that is not subject to the whim of individual nations. That would solve much of the problem. But also, we need to make sure that there is a link between the emissions on land and what happens in the ocean. And that's one of the SDGs goal, to make sure that these SDGs are not isolated silos, but that there is integration and that they fit each other. Homie, on other areas of governance that need to be addressed? So again, a couple of examples. Right now, the uh, developing world accounts for uh, about six and a half billion uh, people. Civil society organizations in the uh, developing world are hardly represented, certainly in financial terms, mm -hmm. in governance mechanisms. So even though we do have actually a uh, number of grassroots organizations all across the uh, world, they have a great deal of difficulty in getting their voices heard, of doing independent uh, research, of being able to carry out their activities. And in many instances, governments are actually clamping down on them and on their activities. If we really want to have a governance framework that will help to implement the SDGs, hold leaders to account for the progress they make in implementation of the uh, SDGs, then we really need to have civil society everywhere playing a much more active role. And this will require us to rethink the way in which we provide them some uh, basic support. Mm -hmm. Another example 
is in the so-called big systems that we have in the uh, world. So we talked a little bit about oceans, but we also have land use systems. We have energy systems. We have recycling uh, systems. None of those have their own governance arrangements. They're all done in a uh, ad hoc uh, fashion. And that's proven to be quite problematic because you can't then add up all of the uh, subsidies that are uh, spent. You can't get all of the relevant people to the uh, table. You can't make decisions about how we actually make these big systems that ultimately will uh, drive our uh, mm. lives, how to make them more efficient. And if we don't make them more efficient, then we will not be able to uh, reach the SDGs and uh, we will be in a much worse place by 2030. And 2030 is the year in which we're hoping to achieve the SDGs. Yes, but I should say that it's a target year, partly because if we don't start to uh, really try to uh, make changes now, it becomes much more expensive and in some cases impossible to alter the uh, trajectory. So we have to think about the SDGs not as being the end point, but about being a critical point where some windows will shut. Opportunities that we have today will simply no longer exist. And it's really important, therefore, that we uh, use this particular uh, 10 plus uh, years until 2030 to make a uh, very dramatic move so that at least we have the option afterwards of continuing to move the world to a uh, sustainable trajectory. You and your co-editors write in the book's introduction about what, to my mind, is one of the major obstacles to that, and that's the era of deglobalization is upon us, you write. What do you mean by that, and why does it matter for achieving the sustainable development goals? So I think all we really meant was that uh, we lived through, many of us have lived through a uh, period where the major economies of the world thought alike, had similar values, similar interests, and periodically came together for uh, great international common achievements. Today we have a lot of quarreling amongst all kinds of uh, countries, and it's just becoming more and more difficult to actually have the kind of international cooperation that we really need. And so when you uh, look at many of the uh, solutions that are being proposed, take oceans for example, what we need actually is for countries to come together and hash out some agreements. They have to come together about uh, the norms and standards mm -hmm. of the behavior. They have to come together about financing and the sharing of the uh, financial burdens that are um, being talked about. If we don't have that, then it'll be very difficult to make progress. And uh, right now, it's not proving to be a, uh, a time mm -hmm. when there is a great deal of commonality in the way in which countries uh, engage with each other. So we're at a difficult moment. There's a lot that stands before us. Are you optimistic on the oceans, Henrik? The problems are huge. It's difficult not to be pessimistic, but we know what the solutions are, and we have great success stories. And one example is protecting parts of the ocean, these protected areas where there is no fishing, no mining, no oil drilling, no direct human threats. When we give the ocean space, the ocean comes back spectacularly. We've seen places come back from degraded to pristine in only 10 years. The ocean has an extraordinary regenerative power. We just need to give it space. Tommy, 
your optimism? You know, I am optimistic, and I'm optimistic uh, for uh, many of the same reasons, which is science, science and technology. It's science and technology that allow us now to understand more about the uh, oceans, and the same is true in so many other uh, issues that we face. And what's really new about the Sustainable Development Goals is that academia has become much more uh, engaged. Civil society has become much more engaged. And business has become much more engaged. Mm. The business community now understands that going forward with unsustainable development is not in their interests. And in many ways, they are driving this agenda forward themselves and just asking government to step out of the way. So with this much, much broader engagement of new groups and communities, I think we uh, stand a uh, great shot at success. Thank you, Homie and Enric, for taking the time today to come by to talk to us about your new book, From Summits to Solutions. Thank you, Thank Bill. you. And now here's Molly Reynolds with another edition of What's Happening in Congress. Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. In a recent joint press conference with Russian President Vladimir Putin, President Donald Trump accepted his Russian counterpart's assurances that his country had not interfered in the 2016 U.S. elections. Trump's rejection of the conclusions of the U.S. intelligence community came just days after the Justice Department announced that it was indicting 12 Russian nationals for activities during the 2016 campaign and drew critical comments from a range of Republican members of Congress. Senator John McCain went as far as to call it one of the most disgraceful performances by an American president in memory. Republican legislators have deployed these kinds of verbal rebukes of the president before, only to follow them with little serious public action though there are a range of options available to members should they want to use them. One set of possibilities involves passing legislation. This could take a number of forms. Congress could adopt stricter sanctions against Russia as punishment for 2016, or could pass legislation imposing future sanctions if there is evidence that Russia does the same in 2018. Alternatively, Congress could pass a bill that seeks to address the underlying problem of vulnerable election systems, or one that brings various actions of the president under legislative review, or one that protects the special counsel's investigation. The options are legion. So far, the prospects for using legislation to push back against Trump seem decidedly mixed. Both Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Speaker of the House Paul Ryan have indicated that legislation targeted at Russia was a possibility, but have yet to provide firm timetables for action. A second avenue Congress could pursue is oversight. That is, holding hearings, obtaining executive branch records, or otherwise trying to make public information about the Trump administration's policy towards Russia or his personal financial situation vis-a-vis the country. With the exception of the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation into Russian interference, however, Congress's efforts to investigate the matter have largely been lacking over the last 18 months. A third option would be for individual members who object to Trump's position, especially in the Senate, where the Republicans' narrow margin of control gives individual senators significant leverage, to withhold their support for his legislative priorities or perhaps his nominee to the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. From Republicans' perspective, this would be a hard sell. 
In many cases, those legislative goals and nominations are just as important, if not more important, to legislators than they are to President Trump himself. As Senator Bob Corker, one of Trump's more vocal Republican Senate critics, described it, why would I cut off my nose to spite my face when asked about opposing Trump's nominee to the high court over their disagreements on Russia? Congress's minority party, the Democrats, have relatively few procedural tools that they can use to substantively push back against Trump, but they can take more symbolic action. During floor debate on a recent spending bill that did not continue providing election security funds at the same level they were allocated in the last spending bill, House Democrats came to the floor seeking to offer an amendment to restore the money. They were unsuccessful, but given their limited options, even failed efforts may have some signaling value. In the Senate, meanwhile, Democrats could attempt to grind the chamber to a halt or otherwise generate procedural chaos. But the ability of the majority party to respond to those tactics means that the chances of Democrats meaningfully changing the course of events would be small. Where then does that leave us? Either congressional Republicans need to change their minds and decide that more forceful action is in their political interest, or congressional Democrats need to retake control of one or both chambers of Congress in the fall and use their majority status to push back against Trump. Until then, however, we're likely to see more of the same happening in Congress. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahian for design and web support. Our interns are Sarah Miner and Leah Kayali. Finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events, podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. 